0: Welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sanderlind, and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Sarah Fine, who's a lecturer in philosophy at King's College London, and to Christopher Heath Wellman, who's a professor of philosophy at Washington University. And I'm going to be talking to them about why it is wrong for states to choose immigrants on the basis of race or ethnicity. In a book chapter in her new book, Migration in Political Theory, which is co-edited with Leah Ippi, Sarah Fine argues that political theorists who are working on the ethics of immigration should pay a lot more attention to the history of racial and ethnic discrimination in immigration policies. She suggests that those theories that argue that states do have a right to exclude immigrants must nonetheless be able to tell us what is wrong with racial and ethnic discrimination in immigration policies. If these theories of a right to exclude can't diagnose the problem of discrimination, then she suggests perhaps the theory itself needs to be revised. So one of the theories that she does discuss um, is Christopher Heath-Wellman's influential account, which is based on the freedom of association. Because he argues states have the right to freedom of association, they also have a right to not associate with others, which means that they do have a right to exclude immigrants. So to start off our discussion, I asked Sarah Fine why she thinks that racial and ethnic discrimination In immigration policy is problematic at all why can't they just choose to accept whoever they want as immigrants? Yeah I think it's a
1: a really important question and I would identify three different kinds of approaches to answering this question Um, they're not mutually exclusive they are interrelated but I'll start with what I would call a more historical approach uh, where one might consider the ways in which ethnic and racial discrimination and immigration policy have played out in the past. Um, The examples are numerous, of course, and we can think of many um, countries in which racial and ethnic discrimination and immigration policy have been rife. Uh, Think of Australia, Britain, the United States, for instance. Um, We might think about racial and ethnic discrimination in immigration policies then against also the backdrop of European colonialism and empire and slavery and the slave trade. Um, We could think in that historical context about those who faced discrimination and who were harmed or denied opportunities in the face of it. We might think about the legacy of those kinds of practices for the countries in question, for their own citizens, for members of minorities who were discriminated against, um, the legacy for political discourse and for other kinds of rights and opportunities. And we might think of the legacy for cross-communal solidarity within the societies in question. And then there's also the question of the legacy more broadly, beyond borders, um, for example, we might think of groups that have been historically oppressed, subordinated, um, and who face this kind of discrimination. Um, some obvious examples spring to mind, for example, Jews, Roma. Uh, so furthermore, we can consider the ways in which these um, practices of discrimination and immigration policy can reinforce um, and exacerbate existing patterns of inequality, of domination, injustice and so forth between groups. So that's the kind of historical approach that focuses on the ways in which ethnic and racial discrimination in immigration policy have played out and the kinds of effects that we're aware of um, via those policies. Another approach related is what I would call a more philosophical one, uh, where we might seek to develop a philosophical theory about when and uh, in which senses discrimination is wrong, and then to apply that more general answer to the question of immigration policy in particular. So accounts along these lines are usually grounded in the idea Um, that, for example, people should be treated as equals and then would develop an argument about the kinds of practices and policies that fail to treat people as equals. Uh, So my colleague, Andrea Sangiovanni at King's and our former student, Desiree Lim, who's now at Stanford, are doing great work on just those sorts of questions about um, when discrimination is wrong and for what reasons. Then thirdly, we could take what I would call a more political approach And here we would focus on the issue of what's problematic about states in particular discriminating against candidates for admission and for naturalization on racial and ethnic grounds, because of course states aren't private individuals, so the issues may be different when we're talking about states rather than talking about discrimination um, between private individuals. And this may also include more global questions about the responsibilities of states and indeed non-state actors in the international sphere. And I would say that the best kind of answer to the question of why racial and ethnic discrimination in immigration policy is problematic will combine elements of all of those different approaches. And of course, we might also want to think about questions to do with what we mean by problematic here. So... Problematic could mean always impermissible, or it could mean something like, well, it's morally troubling in certain cases, but still permissible, uh, perhaps because, say, um, the person, the agent, the thing in question has the right to engage in, say, things that we might call wrong for other reasons. Um, Maybe we want to say that it's problematic in the sense that it has bad effects but still that the agent in question may have um, rights to do those kinds of things, or we might think it lacks virtue. So there are various ways in which um, discrimination might be described as problematic, and then we have to figure out exactly when and whether it's also wrong and impermissible.
0: Thank you. And Kit, do you agree uh, that it's problematic, uh, the racial and ethnic discrimination in immigration policy and uh, on the same grounds? And and how um, sort of serious do you think this critique is as well? That some of the theories that, that you advocate, for example, uh, according to Sarah, um, can't really tell us why this is problematic.
2: Um, so I agree with absolutely everything that Sarah just said. Um, so that I think is is not a disagreement. And I should say, pre-theoretically, start off with uh, the conviction. That uh, when countries discriminate based on, say, ethnicity, um, that seems like it's got to be wrong. And and uh, Sarah very helpfully sort of distinguished between impermissible and wrong in some other sense. And I'll say for for wrong in some other sense, I'll say deplorable. Right. Um, so um, that's that's where I start. I, I feel like it's I've started. With the idea that that's got to be wrong, it's got to obviously be wrong, and it can't be that hard to come up with an explanation. What's been interesting for me <clears throat> is that it's been incredibly hard to come up with an explanation uh, in in the state's case. and there are there are two things, uh, two ways to start. One is just with the conviction which I have, and i'm I'm confident all arguments have to start somewhere. But just that when an individual discriminates uh, on these grounds, uh, she, she's utterly deplorable, right? So if, if Sarah invites me over to a dinner party and I say, well, are you going to invite any blacks? If so, I don't want to come, right? It seems to me that I'm fine granting the assumption without argument that, that I'm utterly reprehensible, I'm deplorable. Uh, and I wouldn't blame Sarah for shunning me. Uh, Sarah very helpfully distinguishes though, is it impermissible? Right? Do I have a duty to come, or do I have a duty uh, to be indifferent uh, to the ethnicity of the people with whom I dine? Uh, and that's a much harder um, conclusion to come to, and I don't know how to come to it. Um, then there's a second approach, <clears throat> which is uh, a political rather than interpersonal one, more institutional. And it's a sort of, I'm a card-carrying liberal, uh, and it's often uncontroversially described of liberals that they believe that liberal states have to treat their constituents as as free and equal, okay? And what that means is uh, if you have um, people's life prospects being, um, you know, profoundly shaped by, for instance, their ethnicity, then it's the state's business to come in and, and try and interfere, Right, uh, and and um, and maybe we can get a duty out of that. So, for instance, I'm left-handed and hazel-eyed, right? And if uh, there's a hotel somewhere that doesn't allow left-handed guests, that sort of seems weird. It seems curious, uh, but I wouldn't expect uh, the state to come in and say, No, no, no! You've got to you've got to let left-handed and right-handed people in. Uh, and this and but that's not what's going on in the real world. In the real world, for instance, in the United States, we have this horrible history of discriminating based upon whether you're white or black, and we've got all kinds of uh, businesses saying, well, we'll cater to white people but not to black people. And under those circumstances, I think that the government has a responsibility to make sure that the life prospects of people um, are reasonably equal. And I have no objection to their coming in and saying, look... If you want to have a a restaurant, you may not discriminate based upon um, uh, color. Uh, If you're going to have a hotel, you cannot discriminate based on ethnicity. So um, either one of those seems like a great place to start and a relatively uncontroversial place to start. Where things get more interesting is when we turn to, well, what can we say about a state and we want to say not only is uh, is a state deplorable, but a state seems to be acting unjustly, impermissibly when it discriminates. Um, and what's given me fits is that it's not clear that a state has to worry about everyone in the world, making sure everybody in the world is free and equal in the same way that a state has to, has a, a moral obligation to assure that its own constituents are treated uh, freely and equally. Um, and so... Where I am, and I've tried to be honest about this in uh, the little I've written about it, is to say, golly, I'm stumped, right? Because I start off thinking it should be so easy to explain why this is wrong. And yet I've you know, i surveyed the literature and none of the accounts that I've seen really captures it in the way that I'd like. Um, and I can't come up with one that's better. So now I'm starting as a very long-winded intro. Now to come back, how problematic is it for my account? Um, I don't think that's problematic. I think it's a genuinely difficult question. What would be extremely problematic for accounts like mine, which which feature freedom of association, would be if someone like Sarah or somebody else could come up with a very clear and compelling explanation, which was unavailable to my account. If somebody could say look, this is why discrimination in this context is wrong, and you can't accommodate it, right? Hmm. Uh, or, uh, so it seems to me that there's, there's uh, a fork in the road. We can either say, well, we don't have the argument, but we just know it to be the case. If we know it to be the case, then people like uh, me who have these theories can say, fine, I know it to be the case too, And so I don't have to furnish an argument to explain why, even though freedom of association generally prevails, it doesn't prevail in this case. So that doesn't worry me. What would be very problematic is if somebody could come up with an argument which was clear and compelling and yet
0: unavailable to me. Mm. Do you you agree with that conclusion, Sarah?
1: Well, I think there are some really important things to say in relation to this. So the first is that Kit, just like many of the people who write in defence of something like the state's right to exclude would-be immigrants, often starts from the idea that, well, of course, racial and ethnic discrimination in immigration policy is not allowed. So there are limits to what the state is allowed to do with respect to admission and indeed naturalization policies. Um, And then what happens is that whole history of racism and racial and ethnic discrimination in immigration policy, in the whole setup of the immigration policy, of the immigration system as we know it, sort of gets pushed to one side. So what we have is um, an easy way of being able to suggests that we can separate out that kind of history of racism and so forth from justification for immigration restrictions. And I actually think that we, we should really press on this and say, hang on a minute, it, it's one thing to say that I can defend the state's right to exclude under the following conditions, as long as you know we're talking about a scenario in which racial and ethnic discrimination is unacceptable. Um, But it's quite another to sort of say, well, we're in a scenario where that's the reality. It's not just historical. It remains the case today. It's it's present in pretty much every policy that we can think of, either directly or indirectly, implicitly or explicitly. So I, I think we need to step up to the plate here. Um, now, I admire Kit's honesty, and I think it's really important to say I both have this intuition that racial and ethnic discrimination and immigration policy is wrong, and I can't quite fit that within my theory, but I don't think we can stop there. I think then you have to take a step back and say, right, so what do I do about this? Which, which one's got to give? Do I just dig my heels in and say I'm happy with both? No, I don't think so. And what's more, I think, that we need to take very seriously the background in which we find ourselves. So the, the tendency in, in political philosophy when it comes to discussing migration is to assume that we're talking about a context in which um, human rights are not being violated or a context we're talking about a context in which um, certain principles of justice are being adhered to. But that's not what we have now. So we've got to ask the question... Are you saying that states are permitted to set their own admissions policies as long as they don't explicitly discriminate on the basis of of race and ethnicity and then we don't have to worry about other questions to do with, um, say, racial injustice within immigration because that's no longer relevant in that kind of context? So, so much more needs to be said and that's one of the reasons why I'm really interested in this question. Um, I think the question of why exactly discrimination is problematic is a very important one but there's also this, this the importance of taking race and ethnicity in immigration restrictions really seriously thinking about how that plays into our theory and thinking about how we ought to theorize given that kind of background
0: mm, so kit do you want to um, respond to that <laughs>
2: um i do um i think Uh, I think there must be serious uh, and important differences between uh, Sarah and me, but I don't think we've gotten to them just yet. (laughs) Uh, So I also agree with that, that, um, you know, that you can do some idealized, theorizing, and you can do some abstract theorizing, uh, but you better be darn careful not to conclude that though whatever conclusions you get there necessarily apply to the contemporary context. And Sarah's absolutely right to stress uh, our caution there. But don't disagree with that. And I also think that the historical context is actually crucial to precisely these questions. So to give an example, um, I would be aghast uh, you know, it used to be that the Ivy League schools in the United States, the most prestigious schools, almost all schools, but the most prestigious schools were open only to white men. Um, Jews would be excluded, or there'd be a quota only of a certain number of Jews. That, in a context of sexism, racism, is obviously impermissible. But now, imagine in the contemporary context that you want to have an all-women school, or we've got historically black colleges, and you can imagine. Uh, in those in in current context you'd say given how women are treated as second class citizens it's okay to have women only schools and not okay to have uh, male only schools right Uh, or you could say look you you may not in the United States today given its history and its contemporary injustice you may not have a school which formally excludes uh, blacks but you may have an all black school right? If that, uh, uh, and, and the reason is, if, if this is going to be conducive to learning, right, and if this is going to be a protection against injustice, right, that seems okay to me. And so, f- similarly, there are countries in Africa, right, which uh, have a formal prohibition on European immigration, and I don't have the same types of qualms with that that I do with the types of cases that Sarah is rightly calling our attention to. So context definitely matters. And it also shows it's it's a lot more complicated. It's not just a, a global prohibition of considering ethnicity or gender or religion or things like this. Um, you could also imagine, for instance, us giving more leeway to uh, an all-Jewish state in the wake of, of World War II, right? So that we'd say this, this matters. Um, so she's absolutely right about that, um, uh, I think. Uh, but then then this may be where we differ. Uh, and it, uh, at my current state of thinking, uh, Sarah's right, that I have not been able to come up with an explanation, which explains why it's global it's necessarily wrong to discriminate against uh, for states, uh, wealthy, affluent, liberal democracies to discriminate based upon ethnicity. okay? And then what gives? Uh, and I'm not so in the grips of my pre-theoretic convictions that I'm willing to, therefore, scrap my theory of immigration. And that that may be where she and I sort of exercise our reflective equilibrium very differently. And I can give you a couple sort of personal stories. I'm older than you two, Um, so I remember being a kid when uh, the news broke that they were able to do in vitro fertilization. At that time, it was called a test tube baby. And we were all, aghast. It's like, gassed. It like you, you can't create human beings that way. That's got to be wrong, right? It's just sort of similar to the cloning debates now. Uh, but, you know, none of us uh, was able to come up with a compelling argument. And now sort of in vitro fertilization is ho-hum random. It sort of struck us as, as got to be wrong. Or in my own research, uh, my first book was on secession. And I defended a very permissive account of secession. And that was born out of my dissertation, in which I started uh, the dissertation saying, well, these clearly you don't have a right to secede in the absence of injustice. I just need to explain why. And I looked at the arguments. I couldn't come up with any arguments. And so then I ended up adopting the opposite conclusion. So, um, and I'm not sure that's wrong. I'm not sure we shouldn't allow Scotland to secede from um, Great Britain, even in the absence of injustice. So uh, when push comes to shove... Uh, Sarah, that may be where Sarah and I really differ, is that uh, I'm more willing to give up my uh, sort of pre-theoretic convictions. Uh, not happily, by the way. It's, I, at no point am I interested in sort of being a champion of, of racism <laughs> or, or exclusion based on ethnicity. I'm just saying, wow, um, you know, this is harder than I thought. And until someone can come up with, with an argument, then we should be open-minded about it.
0: I think that's quite interesting in how our intuitions about this might actually um, sometimes go in a different direction. And at least, because you talk a lot about this sort of historical, both you historical context, but actually there is. Um, I mean, the EU, for example, is perhaps. Uh, I mean, it's not explicitly ethnically um, sort of discriminatory, but it's clear that the um, freedom of movement is sort of enabled by cultural similarity and that it's more and more difficult to sort of more culturally distant um perhaps new eu member states become and there are other examples so the scandinavian countries are quite happily got freedom of movement and everyone sort of in public debate has kind of quite accepted that that kind of ethnic um discrimination um is acceptable so um so it seems to me that the uh, when people think about sort of white Australia policy, that quite um, immediately you think that's wrong and racist, but perhaps that there are um, some policies today that we don't necessarily think about as ethnic discrimination, but actually they're only enabled because they, they sort of are. So I was just going to see what you think about that lastly and, and why you think, you know, it's, it starts opening up this question Um, the sort of wider question of why states can discriminate at all between different migrants and why would... So if you think of skill levels, then to some extent, they might imply ethnic discrimination as well, because we know that, you know, who... going to be the more uh, it's not necessarily the case that the the more um skilled and educated migrants will will be um from from certain regions in the world but it's probably more likely that that's the case um so, so so it's perhaps the intuitions and the 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 categories are might not as straightforward as we think
1: yeah that's good
0: yeah so here's the big difference between Kit
1: and I. The most fundamental difference is that Kit is a defender of the idea that states have a right to exclude would-be immigrants. And I happen to think that this idea is open to serious challenge. Um, I don't think that there is a good argument in defense of the state's right to exclude. So in a sense... Um, because I set out to challenge the idea that states have a right to exclude, I don't think that they should be entitled to set their own immigration policies in line with their own interests and objectives. So in a sense, for me, the question of on what basis states should be able to discriminate well, <laughs> it's a moot one, because I don't think that they should. Um, but of course, even where states didn't have a general right to exclude, um, by which I mean something like a wide degree of discretion over immigration and naturalization policy, of course, there would still be cases where and context in which some exclusion uh, would be permissible. So the question wouldn't just disappear altogether, but it may be better cast as, may or even should immigration policy prioritise the claims of certain people in certain contexts, for example, um, family members of citizens. But then the focus isn't so much on the state's interests per se, but rather on the strength of the migrants' claims to be admitted. So we might imagine cases in which um, the state could make a serious case for only being able to admit a certain number of people in a given year. And then in that given year, we might think that certain individuals' claims to be admitted are stronger than others. Um, But it wouldn't be a question of, is the state allowed to discriminate on this or that um, ground? And then there's also the question of whether states um, have particular responsibilities to members of former colonies or descendants of those who are the victims of injustice. So, of course, it may be the case that states ought to favour their claims of, of, of those whom they've wronged or um, who are the descendants of people who they've wronged. So it's certainly um, important even for people who challenge the idea that states have a right to exclude. But I think the question is much more difficult for people like Kit who want to defend the idea that the state has a right to exclude but also want to set clear limits on selection criteria.
0: Okay. She's
2: right. She's right, and so I've I've got a until I can come up with an argument, I need to back away uh, from the clear conclusion that they can um, set selection criteria, and I've tried to do that. I've tried to you know be honest in my writing that this is this is a question that I haven't to my satisfaction answered, um, and and so where the difference is is um, I'm I'm sort of trying to be intellectually honest, but saying look. I think it's it's a hard question for me, but I think it's because it's a hard question. Uh, and then Sarah is able to jump in and say, "Aha! Yet another problem for you, right? Because it's not just that we differ about this sort of fundamental thing, but notice you've got a problem where nobody pre-theoretically thinks you should have a problem." Um, and she's right.
1: But I think um, what's interesting is that you you pointed out, Clara that there are these different categories that people might be discriminated on the basis of, and what's the difference between them. So in David Miller's work in Parts, for example, he said, right, well, states shouldn't be allowed to discriminate between candidates for admission on the basis of race or ethnicity, but there might be an exception for religion, for instance, where religion is central to the public culture of that state in particular, and he picks up the example of Israel. I think that highlights the problem of trying to identify which of these categories may or may not be permissible grounds for exclusion, precisely because religion is such a slippery category, and in many cases slides into, um, in many people's understandings, the categories of race and ethnicity. We can think of lots of groups where that um, might be the case. So, for example, Jews. You know, in many contexts, Jews are considered and have considered themselves to be a religious group but they're also described and have considered themselves to be an ethnicity a okay. racial group a cultural group and so forth so if we're talking about religion there is the case that religion is an acceptable feature of public culture and one in which um, and one that permits states to discriminate between applicants on the grounds of that particular Uh, Feature, and what would we mean by that? Do we mean something like belief system, faith, or can it be something like heredity? So we've got a really important question there. What's the difference between these kinds of categories? And I think that comes back to the point that I made earlier about how we need to we need to bring this to the forefront of our research about the ethics of migration. These categories are important. We can't just treat them as simple categories. We've got to think very carefully about what these categories mean. We've got to think very carefully about the place of race and ethnicity and religion for that matter and sexuality, et cetera, within the context of the history of immigration restrictions. Uh, So it isn't just enough to say, hey, we can have a legitimate immigration policy so long as it doesn't use these as criteria for admission and naturalization, because there's so much more to it than that, in my view. And it may be that these things are inextricable. It may be that we're not able, that Kit's not able to come up with a good argument to the effect that it's okay both to have the state setting its own immigration policy, but not okay for the state to do so on grounds of race and ethnicity because these two are so intertwined that we can't separate them out. That might be the
2: case.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting, with the, especially with the concept of ethnicity because that's in particular very slippery. Um, and I was wondering what you thought about that, um, Kit, because you could... Um, so the sort of nationalist theories in particular that would um, say uh, perhaps you could discriminate on the basis of culture... Uh, nationality, uh, religion, perhaps uh, I don 't know language maybe these things that um, that um, they help you preserve the national culture and um and if you if you don't have that position then then you pro if you, if you don't have nationalist position then you would probably um quite you know uh, disagree with that uh, immediately but then on the other hand you have i know you mentioned some of these sort of more difficult cases kit and you could also bring up like indigenous peoples for example so even if you're not of the nationalist position you might find it a bit difficult to think about those groups where um where you kind of want them to be able to preserve maybe you do maybe you don't but it seems that intuitions are m- much more problematic um, so even non-nationalists might think that there's a case there for preserving culture which might mean discriminating uh, migrants on the basis mm-hmm. of culture which might be ethnicity or
2: <laughs> yeah so there's um So there's two things. So I don't lead with nationalism. I don't lead with culture. But I'm certainly sympathetic to people who say, look, I care about my culture. I think I think David Miller's on strong grounds where he says it's not unreasonable that people care about, you know, the cultural context in which they live. OK, so that seems perfectly legitimate. Um, And then uh, Sarah's right that, well, look, this is messy. I mean, how we slice and dice these things is far from uh, uncontroversial, and and there are all kinds of unclear cases. Also seems right. Um, So, um, you know, there are two sort of ways you can do this. One is you can cheat, right? And you say, well, look, I'm... I'm, what's really motivating me is racism, so I'm going to hide under this nationalist banner or this cultural banner, right? And and we have a history of doing this in the United States, right? So we want to deny blacks the right to vote, uh, but uh, we you know we said okay, well you you can vote if your grandfather voted, right? And it's So that that stuff is easy to get rid of, but there are others that um, you know where it seems a reasonable proxy. Right, so it's it seems obviously problematic. I'd seem again not necessarily impermissible, but sort of deplorable if Kit Wellman announces, "Oh, I could never marry uh, a black person," right? But when Spike Lee says, "I could never marry a white person," right, you get that for him, it's it's uh, his lived experience as a black American is such that there's a a, a, a huge cultural divide between whites and blacks, uh, and um, uh, and so there, I'm, I'm not going to uh, initially and roundly criticize Spike Lee or any black person to say, look, you know, for me, it, you know, it matters how I interact with whites and blacks. Um, so again, I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, I disagree with, you know, almost nothing. We have fundamental sort of uh, uh, different approaches and different conclusions. But on this, uh, you know, almost nothing that Sarah has said. Uh, seems wrong to me Um, and uh, these are the i think they are very difficult questions uh, and i think that i don't have to apologize that uh, they cause difficulties for my approach
0: to find out more about sarah fine and christopher heath Bowman, and to listen to previous episodes please visit our website talkingmigration.com and don't forget that you can subscribe on itunes that was all for this time thank you for listening